You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Emily Marker. She's an assistant professor of history at Rutgers University, Camden. Her research and teaching interests are in imperial and post-colonial Europe, Francophone Africa, race, religion, youth, and global history. Her work has been published in the American Historical Review, French Politics, Culture and Society, and No, a Journal on the Formation of Knowledge. In addition to her research and teaching, Dr. Marker works on initiatives for social justice and equity in the academy. A co-founder of the Race and Pedagogy Working Group at the University of Chicago, she organizes workshops, facilitations, and community classes on power, privilege, and inclusive teaching. She's a member of the graduate faculty in history at Rutgers New Brunswick and Rutgers Center for African Studies and former member of the Governing Council of the Western Society for French History. Hello, so we're here with Dr. Marker today. (laughs) Hi, welcome. So before we get into um, the book, I wanted to start by asking you um, the origins of this project. So a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project and how you came into it. What sort of concerns, personal, ethical, philosophical, that drew you to the questions in Black France, White Europe? So why this project? Uh, Great. Thank you for uh, inviting me to talk about this book and uh, and for this conversation. I have been working on this book for a very long time. I started working on this project in 2010, which was a bit of a different moment than we're in right now, uh, even if uh, maybe we should have seen the writing on the walls better then. Uh, But I came to the project in a a sort of windy path. I had started uh, in graduate school as an 18th and 19th century person. Um, So I wasn't working on uh, the late 20th century or the post-war period. And after uh, writing my master's thesis and doing my oral exams, all sort of thinking I was going to look at this earlier time period, I realized that the overarching questions that I was really interested in, which were sort of about um, how racism works, how it evolves, how it's reproduced, uh, how racial and religious exclusions uh, work together, that these questions, uh, while certainly not exhausted for the 18th and 19th century, were seemed really unknown for this later period uh, in the late 20th century. It seemed like people were really struggling to try and figure out, you know, how how does race work in the aftermath of uh, World War II and a sort of global and ostensibly global reckoning with uh, racial and religious persecution? Um, 
what does it look like now and how did it get to be this way? And I felt like there weren't, there weren't good answers for that. Um, so I sort of started thinking about, well, if I want to try and get a handle on, uh, racism, uh, in, in France, but maybe also more broadly in Europe uh, and across these, you know, imperial and post-colonial geographies, you know, where where should I start looking? <laughs> what's uh, what's what's the most fruitful path to pursue? Uh, and it struck me that uh, you know, having gone to university in the early two thousands when French colonial history was really uh, sort of starting to come into its own. Uh, and and then in graduate school at the end of that de decade, um, that that thinking in a sort of French or French colonial framework maybe wasn't going to get us all the answers that we needed. Um, and so I started thinking about um, you know the way in which French scholars in particular seemed like they really wanted to do French colonial history in this sort of Franco-Francaise mode, right? That it is French France's unique political culture of republicanism, of universalism, of secularism and colorblindness that has determined sort of the contours of, um, of empire, of racism, of all these issues. And, and I was thinking, well, maybe that's not the full story because in uh, looking across Europe in the 2000s or around 2010 when I was starting this project, you know, we were seeing starting to see really similar patterns across Europe, right? That, and we know uh, intellectually that uh, colonialism has always been a transnational European project. We know that white supremacy is a transnational and global project. Um, so, so maybe we need a more transnationalizing framework and a trans-imperial framework even for thinking about um, racial reconstruction in France after World War II and its empire. Um, so that's how I started uh, getting interested in this sort of intersecting histories of French colonial and uh, transnational European history. Um, and, uh, and I think that the, the pressures on transnational Europe since I started this project have only sort of raised new questions for me and, and made me wonder how it is that despite all of the tumult in the past decade since I started working on this project, the project still does speak so well to many of our current moment, many of the issues in our current moment, um, which I think just raises questions about, um, you know, structural transformation, the lack thereof, how event-driven histories maybe lead us a little astray sometimes if we get too wrapped up in expecting these big ruptures from things that seem like turning points, but maybe they're the points that didn't quite turn. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure while you had to work on this and then, you know, you had the Brexit uh, that came about, which I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit how that affected or didn't affect your work. But like you said, it further reinforces why things are the way they are. Um, and I think one of the things that I liked about your book was that you pretty much mentioned all these different histories, right? So whether it was what was going on on the continent um, to the post-war empire, and then of course, the, like what was happening within Europe, and you're like, well, these are like entangled histories that we have to talk about. 
And we can't talk about the decolonization of Africa without European integration in Africa. And I really like how throughout this book, the book you really did say, what may have made sense now <laughs> didn't make sense then. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like right now we can look in retrospect and be like, of course these two models wouldn't have worked of European integration and why Africans wouldn't be seen as Europeans or like why the fight would be as such. Um, so back then it made sense to have this model and to have this pathway to citizenship. Um, but before we kind of get into that, can you talk to us a little bit more about these entangled histories? Because um, I really want to know how you got about talking about the post-war era and how that can really help us understand um, this project of you know European transnational and building identity and this European integration in Africa. Yeah. Great. That was uh, a lot of words. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was reading the sections and I was like, okay, like there are so many questions here. Like, how do I phrase this? I don't know how it's going to come out, but I'm, I'm sure no, you'll be able to pull the keywords. <laughs> it's great. It's great. All right. So let me take one part first, which is um, just thinking about European integration and, and sort of late colonialism and decolonization together. So when I started this project in 2010, people... There were, there were some scholars in Europe that had asked some questions about, you know, how was it, you know, during these early treaty negotiations for some of the earliest European institutions, which are all happening in the 1950s, um, you know, how, how did the, the European powers that still had overseas territories figure out how to kind of include those territories or if necessary, exclude those territories in this sort of very legal formalistic process of creating these early European institutions. So there was a little work on that in French um, and some in German when I started working on this project, but really the uh, interest in trying to think these histories together was really just getting going around 20 10 when I started this project, but it was a lively sort of burgeoning moment where it seemed like a lot of people were starting to ask these questions like, well, hold on a second. These things are happening at the same time, right? Uh, you know, people are thinking about how to modernize their empires, how to turn the page on these histories of, you know, colonial racism and exploitation and try and turn empires into some something else as Frederick Cooper would say, right, you know, how to democratize them in certain ways, at least. And that's happening at the same time that people are trying to think about, well, what could Europe as its own thing be in the wake of fascism and Nazism and the death and destruction on the continent, right? Um, so these are simultaneous projects and people were starting to think about like, okay, you know, um, how is it that these two projects are happening at the same time? And one of the um, sort of, uh, one of the things that I thought was most promising when I first started this project, which is ultimately something that um, is still in the book, but not its focal point, is this project of your Africa, which was this idea of, uh, you know, trying to solidify European unity through coordinated development schemes uh, in Africa, right? Um, so this is an interwar idea. It does not born after World War II, but it sort of gets a new lease on life uh, by post-war leaders who are interested in European integration 
and think that, uh, you know, this could be a boon for democratizing uh, France's post-war empire, or conversely, people who are interested in France's post-war empire and democratizing the empire, who see participation in the European project as potentially helpful in holding France to account. Um, so you do see folks like Leopold Senghor uh, and some other you know, prominent African leaders interested in your Africa at the same time that you have a lot of uh, metropolitan white French folks who are like, yeah, your Africa can be a way of bringing these two projects together and moving moving both forward simultaneously. Um, so this interest in telling these stories together uh, pushed back on a couple of historiographic traditions. Uh, the main narrative, I think, of European post-war history, which goes back to Tony Judd's uh, sort of magnum opus post-war is basically that, you know, it was pretty much clear that, you know, empire wasn't going to be sustainable uh, and that there's a pivot from empire to Europe, that this is a sort of sequential progression, that it's a um, either or. Um, and, you know, I think that since Jet wrote that book in the mid 2000s. You know, there have been many more synthetic European histories that do a little bit better of a job, including, uh, you know, the history of late colonialism and decolonization in the big grand sweep of European history, but it still is something that is kind of bracketed and off to the side. Um, and so, you know, the main impetus for me was that, you know, we're not we're never going to really understand what Europe really means, you know, the Europe that rises after World War II, uh, if we don't think about how uh, these folks were wrestling with a European identity that was also a colonial identity, a post-colonial identity, and a decolonizing identity, <laughs> right? There was vested interest in creating a non-imperialist, non-colonial Europe, uh, as a way of turning turning the page, right, on this uglier, uh, uglier European past. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, I was part of a, a group of younger scholars, you know, working around this period in the late 2000s, early 2010s, who were interested in really trying to break down the wall that had segregated those histories um, to fold like colonialism and decolonization into you know, these new histories of Europe uh, that were supposedly launching Europe on its on its post-colonial uh, path. Um, so uh, so that's uh, what I would say in sort of like the biggest <laughs> grand sweep terms. But I think with the, the interest in the post-war, so when I started thinking about this, I mean, it was it was with an eye to some contemporary writings in the 2000s. Some, someone I mentioned in the epilogue of the book is mm -hmm. Etienne Balibar's essay uh, on droit de cité or apartheid in a book called We the People of Europe, Reflections on Transnational European Citizenship. And in that book from 2004, I mean, he basically says that the way that the European Union had been constructed created a new level of exclusion for non-national residents in Europe, so that not only are they excluded from their national citizenries, but as European rights get codified, they're also excluded at this transnational European level. Um, and so, you know, I was really interested in that very contemporary issue um, and curious about how, how far back does that go? How, how long 
has Europeanness been a, a meaningful uh, other layer of exclusion um, in in the contemporary period? Of course, we know that you know the idea of Europe had long been constructed as a exclusionary geography or category. Um, you know, uh, both with regard to um, you know, whiteness and, and anti-blackness, but also with regard to Christianity and Islam. Um, so this isn't something new, but it seemed to me that, you know, this project to redefine Europe with positive content that starts in the late forties in the aftermath of the war, um, is a moment when that is sort of shored up, rearticulated and reformulated in potentially, uh, really important ways that we hadn't taken into account yet. So you definitely answered the question. Because <laughs> well, I, like, I see it in your eyes. You're like, I don't know if I hit all the keywords. <laughs> so, And it's interesting you bring up uh, Senyal. So I grew up in a household where my dad didn't really like him. You know, so I, it was a Senegalese household and... I like would read about him on my own, but then I think if I bring it to my dad, he was not a fan, um, which made me a little bit confused, you know. And I think the more I'm reading on, I can see the divide of why, you know, some Africans did not like him or not. Um, but I guess I was curious while you were going through this project, how did you, how what was your perspective of most of these African leaders, right? Who had to be in dialogue with France a lot of this time during this European integration and this Euro Africa dream that was being sold. What did you? Because I'm I don't know how I feel at times because it's a divide, right? It's like okay, well, were they pawns <laughs> in this larger scheme? Um, was neg what was negritude exactly? So, Yes, we know we've we've gone through it. It's been stretched out to all sorts of dimensions, but it would be cool to really hear from their mouth one day if they could rise from the dead. But we know that's not <laughs> going to happen. How did they really view what they did? They really think at some point that okay, what I'm doing is really a way for us to be like liberated, you know, like um, libre Afrique instead of just Euro Afrique. Um, or did they really f think that, okay, maybe I'm just going to integrate because that's the best way to do this, having the best of both worlds. But um, how did you view this thing with the African leaders? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think in part, I maybe tried to sidestep that question by focusing on this younger generation that had a really different politics than these leaders, right? And trying to account for why it was that they... Uh, really through their own historical experience came to a different kind of uh, decolonial politics or a politics of decolonization that had a really different vision than their elders, someone like Senghor. But I mean, I do think, you know, and I'm speaking, I'm sure that your, your dad had as many issues with Senghor post-independence as pre. <laughs> so I'm speaking really from his, you know, uh, late colonial era, not, you know, what he did once he was actually in power in independent Senegal. I mean, I think he did have a vision of African empowerment uh, through cooperation and collaboration with the French, through working through these, you know, new opportunities created by European integration. 
Um, and, you know, Senghor isn't the only one. I mean, I think for many of the uh, African leaders who are in the French parliament in this period, um, you know, they're, they're in the parliament, right? They're trying to work through this system. Um, but I think that the their constant disappointment and frustration, um, you know, they are stonewalled throughout this period. Um, as much as there's been this emphasis on, you know, the give and take of the politics of this period, I mean, like they are not getting what they're asking for. Um, and what they're asking for is being construed in new ways as unacceptable asks, <laughs> right? That's part of the story that I'm telling too, and that uh, there's a a racialization of the way that Africans are doing politics uh, as though they are, um, you know, it's these African figures who are creating a race problem in France in this period by constantly talking mm -hmm. about racism yeah. and that there isn't actually racism in France. These, mm -hmm. the presence of these Africans, whether in parliament or in the lecture hall, <laughs> these people are making it an issue when it really isn't one. Um, and I think that that's another reason why that European dimension is crucial to bring into the story, because that is happening on a transnational European scale, right? You know, it is not just France that is saying we France are not our colorblind, secular, raceless society. I mean, this is a transnational European project to define Europe as raceless in the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust, right? To say that race is not a, a native European problem mm -hmm. to the extent that it's a problem now. It's because these, you know, um, quote unquote, racist African politicians are making this about race when it's really about politics. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, for them, it's about politics in so far as there is an unequal and inequitable distribution of both political and material goods among historically racialized populations, right? So, <laughs> um, so I think that, uh, I think there was a, an honest, genuine vision um, that, you know, if, if the French were willing to play ball on many of these issues, one of the most important to Senghor was education. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this is a, a central plank of his vision for some kind of multiracial democracy in post-war France and Africa, that everybody needs access to good quality, intellectual, academic education. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that uh, the instruction that both French and African kids are gonna get in school is going to celebrate African and Black cultures in the same way they celebrate French and European cultures, mm -hmm. right? So it's a curricular project, it's a pedagogical project, it's an access project. Um, it's and you know that's in all of those ways he is stymied <laughs> and and hits a wall, um, and you know I think ultimately that leads him to to go his own way. I mean, there are no other options for him, right? <laughs> um, like you said, but, uh, it brings, yeah, it, it, both it, things can coexist at the same time. And um, mm -hmm. even if you look, well, well, I have to look back at many of these scholars that were in this, this really sensitive time where, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, they should have been either or. Well, maybe not. It's it's delicate. They couldn't have been. They would have been, like you said, stronghold and just stonewalled into 
either being rejected or things being construed a different type of way, um, which is why I think sometimes we won't ever get the full story as much as, <laughs> you know, history tries to piece it together. There will always be that thread that just kind of like disappeared and that story went away. Um, and I remember, I think while you were speaking, you also reminded me of reading about Emma Cezelle's wife and how mm-hmm. she had her own challenges in tr- in terms of just even getting paid, <laughs> you know, and her, like, her correspondences with the French uh, officials in terms of, like, hey, like, I'm doing just as much important work as my husband um, and the Nardell sisters. So they were caught in, in such a sensitive time that we probably won't ever get to understand <laughs> as much as the, the that pressure that they were dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, you know, it's, uh, I mean, this is a, the history that I tell in this book is a history of failure. You know, there was Mm -hmm. a vision of a, of a sort of empowering emancipatory, uh, path forward Mm -hmm. through, um, through empowering youth, young people, um, and offering them equal opportunities for the first time in the history of the French empire. And that is not what happened. Um, and, and essentially it is that experience, like that personal experience, firsthand experience of trying to navigate uh, this impossible situation of, of accessing, you know, first basic education and then more and more advanced levels of education that I think is what radicalizes the younger generations who did not have the same um experience of someone like Senghor, who was mm-hmm. like, you know, sort of sort of arbitrarily picked at random. Mm-hmm. He was very talented. He was able to excel and, you know, pursue, um, you know, the best education that was open to Africans at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, and all of the that first cohort of African politicians and leaders who are in the French parliament, like had been through French school, were conferred with special privileges for having access to that education and French language and, you know, these cultural competencies. And so they're moving in a different space as opposed to this moment of, you know, where it seems like, the massification of that education Mm -hmm. is imperative and it's not happening. And the folks that are able to, you know, navigate these sort of Byzantine pathways are frustrated at every turn. Uh, And that is what leads them to a, a different way of demanding what they think they're entitled to and also a different kind of vision for what, um, what the future might hold. Mm -hmm. So throughout the book, you shift the focus away from um, formal politics and political forms of post-war empire, and you want us to kind of pay more attention to the social and cultural policies that accompanied most of these political forms. So what made you look into the social and cultural policies? Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't plan on focusing exclusively on youth and education when I started working on this project. Uh, you know, I had a wide array of of sort of sectors I was thinking about, you know, maybe housing, uh, but, you know, a lot of cultural politics, other realms of cultural politics, film, radio, pop culture, maybe urban, urbanism, consumption, um, 
But as I was poking around in my initial archival trips, you know, where I found these conversations converging the most clearly and where people were spelling out the most specifically <laughs> what it was that, you know, uh, a sort of renovated Franco-African polity or what transnational Europe might actually look like, you got into the weeds of that when they were talking about like, okay, well, we need to redesign school programs so that people feel European or so that French people feel like they belong in the same community as Africans. And so that's where sort of the rubber hit the road for me in terms of getting, getting at, you know, the real stuff of what these visions were. Um, and you could see the debate, people arguing about, you know, well, no, we shouldn't teach that because, you know, Africans are really like this and French people are really like that, or we should pursue this kind of exchange program because if uh, everybody just developed interracial friendships, you know, we would overcome structural racism, but these are serious things that people were talking about. And it gives you an idea of, um, you know, the way that they're understanding difference, diversity, pluralism, um, what inclusion might, might really entail, um, you know, the sort of sub, the unspoken logics of exclusion, like all of that sort of came, came to the surface so clearly in, you know, these social and cultural policies around youth, youth programming, uh, youth exchanges, uh, and then, you know, sort of the educational institutions, which, you know, are exploding in this period. There's also just a lot of activity <laughs> in these domains. Um, you know, this has been a longstanding goal of the left in France to, you know, really invest in young people, including working class young people, uh, a more expansive vision of, of community building through youth and education that basically had been, um, stymied uh, during the Popular Front moment. Um, and then after the war, you know, that was a, a possibility again. Um, and and France's neighbors were having the same conversations too, right? Um, and so you do see, and, you know, Pan-Africanists are having these conversations outside of the Francosphere, right? So um, it's just a uh, an area where I think you get to, to map the coordinates of belonging uh, of a given society uh, much more clearly than you do in like, you know, the sort of legal statutes of citizenship <laughs> or, you know, the constitution, the structure of the state and the government, you know, all of those things are obviously incredibly important as are uh, the specific institutions that were created after the war for France and Africa and the sort of burgeoning family of, of young European institutions. But I think that when we just talk about the institutions or the citizenship statutes, you know, it's as though everybody's imagining sort of the unmarked universal actor of, of liberalism or something. But that's not that was never the case. Right. You know, everybody is is trying to think about how to build community for you know, socially rooted and enculturated human beings. <laughs> and this is uh, you get that most fully in, you know, these social and cultural policies and realms, and in my case, in education and youth. And of course, you add on religion, and that further, like, <laughs> co like complicates everything. So that was, um, and your book does a, such a great job at explaining why and how France is the way it is, especially in terms of, like, Islam in France. 
and Mm -hmm. why that backlash is so strong that we see today or the conversations around that's happening today. And you speak about the, the culturalization of Christianity and this racialization of Islam, which revolves around the same discourses when Algeria was away, like had to break away from the empire. And then it was like, well, can Algerians be considered French because of this question of Islam? So how does this alignment or misalignment in this case of religion and identity affect citizenships for Franco-Africans? Yeah, this is a crucial, excellent question. Um, I think that, you know, we know, we have this general sense that France is, is a secular country and the problem with uh, the, the contemporary issues with Islam uh, or Islamism is not that France is a Christian country, but that it's a secular country <laughs> and that it is this conflict between Islam and secularism as opposed to a conflict between Islam and some like broader, more religiously identified um white Christian Europeanness <laughs> that is that is really at issue. And I think that um so I I went with this phrase, the culturalization of Christianity, to capture a process that is happening in this immediate aftermath of World War II in France, where secularism, as it had been understood up until that point, you know, this very particular French understanding of laïcité, uh, is being reappraised by not just right-wing Vichyists who, have, of course, hated secularism and undid, uh, you know, this sort of state, uh, the separation of church and state, um, but actually that there is a broad consensus among many in the French political class that, you know, anti-clericalism during the Third Republic before the war had gone too far. That's why they ended up with this Vichy regime, um, a collaborationist regime, but that was, uh, you know, unabashedly Catholic. Um, and so there is, there's actually a retrenchment from secularism at exactly, or at least a certain kind of secularism, a certain way of thinking about secularism, one that specifically disassociated French national identity with Christianity and replaced it with a secular identity. That is all thrown into question in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Uh, and there is a newfound embrace of France's Christian heritage and a cultural understanding of France as Christian, not necessarily a religious or theological one, right? Um, you see this uh, take many forms, but you know, I think that uh, that post-war moment has been underappreciated as a very important uh, recalibration of the ECT, right? Recalibration of the coordinates of, of what that means, where it became newly acceptable to say that France is both Christian and secular, <laughs> right? Culturally Christian, uh, politically secular. And that's really important. Um, it's an important distinction to make at a time when, you know, secularism of the old variety um, is still being used as a, a rationale for not providing um, Islamic education in Muslim majority territories in France's African empire, for not 
supporting in the same way Islamic institutions that the Catholic Church is being supported uh, in France. So you actually have a rollback in the metropole of, you know, this strict prohibition on state funding for Catholic education. And that only increases in the subsequent decades um, so that you have it more and more normalized that, yes, of course, the French state would support Christian educational institutions because France is a culturally Christian country and Europeanization is a really important register at which that becomes more normalized, more like common sense because all of Europe, uh, you know, France's neighbors uh, in Germany and the Netherlands, they, they have, they, they don't have like an established church in those countries, but the state does support confessional uh, schooling uh, in both in both cases, so there's there's a way in which um, you know European integration further reinforces something that was happening already mm-hmm. in the French context, which was this sort of rollback of a dissociation between Christian identity and French national identity, or you know what it might mean to be a French citizen. So I think that that's the flip side. You know, we've there's a lot of really excellent scholarship on you know the way in which Islam. Uh, in the French political context, maybe functions more the way a, a racial marking does as opposed to thinking about religion. Um, and people talk about the racialization of Islam. But I think there's a counterpart to that that is this positive sort of re-Christianization of uh, French culture and identity in this moment that is is not necessarily a theological um, or or religious thing, even though for many people, of course, it is. <laughs> um, but that it... Um, it is uh, this widespread cultural process where it's newly acceptable to once again sort of identify in this way. And for you know many um, who are interested in European integration, it is their their sense of Christian European unity that is motivating them to fight for a united Europe. Um, and you know that's that's an important piece of this sort of post-war uh, puzzle. I was kind of amazed at like the distinction that you made um, in terms of like the culture versus what the state recognizes and accepts. How how did you <laughs> come across this whole? Because I'm quite curious. Like, how did you were you able to like sift through and be like, okay, to reach that conclusion? Was it a combination of the scholarship, the archives, speaking to people? Were you at one point at this project, like super confused, like, okay, something is like missing here that I am <laughs> not completely like, how did you get here? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that there is, there's good literature on the importance of Christian democracy and Christian democratic movements to the European, uh, the construction of Europe, the European integration process that, that was sort of just out there. And I was like aware of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I did know about this, uh, this unusual, uh, sort of scandal in, in the eighties, um, when, you know, all of these measures to refund, uh, Christian education, uh, or confessional education, confessional schools in France, um, from the fifties, uh, you know, was, there was an initiative under the socialist Mitterrand government uh, to to roll that back, and uh, the the minister of education uh, who who launched that was actually 
you know, the the plan to take away that funding was uh, was revoked, and this guy was fired, Alain Severi. And so I knew that there was something really odd about, uh, you know, in the mid 1980s, just five years before the first Veil affair, mm -hmm. that uh, you know there would be this mass mobilization of support for Christian confessional schooling when you had this um, ostensible um, crisis <laughs> over Islamic garb on young girls in public schools, right? Um, so that that seemed just strange to me. Um, and I think that Europe, the Christian democratic undercurrent of Europeanization led me to think a little bit more about how Europe maybe fits in that. But it was really in the archival documents, just reading the way in which it is so explicit, um, the, the Christian vision uh, or the, the vision of a Christian civilization at the core of the European project for its, its chief architects in, in the fifties. Um, and I felt like, you know, well, that, uh, these French education officials from like, you know, the bastion of French secularism, the ministry of education are going to these international education symposia hosted by these European organizations and completely on board with this Christian civilizationalist discourse and rhetoric. And they see France fitting quite neatly in there. So that that was the question for me about, well, how does how else does that rhetoric end up getting repackaged? And you can really see it in the debates about um, you know, providing both Quranic instruction and Arabic language instruction in uh, African schools in Muslim majority regions of the empire, where you know it is patently clear, that it is not about laicite in those places because those are also the territories where the state is basically operating mission schools for um, for African children. I mean, it's a, a complete public-private partnership. There is a, a blurring of any distinction between private Christian education in French Africa uh, and the, the public state schools. And that's something that I trace back to actually Félix Ebué and uh, the early warriors. Um, but, you know, this, this is a convergence then between uh, a partnership between Christian and public education in French Africa and in metropolitan France in the context of uh, a Europeanizing continent. So that was another sort of converging moment where I was starting to put the pieces together. Like, oh, these are, are absolutely directly interconnected processes. We should not be keeping them separate. And speaking back to um, the education that was happening in African countries, you uh, mentioned uh, this the the first African woman to serve in France's uh, post-war parliament, Jean uh, Vial and how she dedicated her political career to making French education widely available to African girls. So once again, my curiosity is here. Uh, can, <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about like your first encounter with her in the archives and how you interpreted her career? So it's an excellent, important question and I appreciate it because I get to uh, give you a shout out uh, <laughs> for someone who, who led me to Jean Bial because I actually did not encounter her in the archives mm. at all. 
Um, the French Senate, uh, which was the House of Parliament that she sat in, was a, a consultative body. So, you know, I wasn't uh, working through their archives as closely as I was in the National Assembly or even the Assembly of the French Union, um, because they're they're not proposing, you know, they're not initiating new programs and policies. So I actually didn't know about her until I happened to be chairing a panel uh, where Annette Joseph Gabriel gave uh, a talk on her own work, Reimagining Liberation, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the full title of her book? It's uh, um, I have it written down somewhere. How Black Women Transform Citizenship mm -hmm. in the French Empire. I think and that's across it, all, all Black women. <laughs> Anybody <laughs> studying, um, that's like on your curriculum. So I know Dr. Vicki Carroll. Actually, yes, Dr. Vicki Carroll was the one who introduced me to that book. And she was yes, like, yep, there you go. And I was like, it's a wonderful book, but it goes to show that you actually have to be looking yeah. for Black women leaving that archival trail because otherwise you might not find them. I would not have learned about Jean Vial uh, if I had not happened to be on a panel with Annette where she mentioned her and I was like, what? Who are you talking about? What are you talking about? I have to go back to your book and look at this um, because you know it's that easy to miss these people in the archival record. Um, you know, she... She died very young uh, and didn't have a very long career. So she just didn't leave the kind of trace. And I even went back to Annette and asked for more information about her and, and she didn't have it. <laughs> um, so it uh, it's, a, it's an excellent reminder that you have to really be looking for a certain kind of historical actors who were incredibly important. Um, but who are often, uh, you know, obscured in the mm -hmm. archival record, um, especially someone like her, a pioneering, pathbreaking Franco-African woman um, who really took it upon herself uh, to try and help uh, African women and girls who were pursuing education, which they are they were very much in the minority throughout the colonial period, mm -hmm. primarily uh, a male space, you know, all of these educational institutions. So no one, they were falling through the crops and no one was helping them. Um, and, you know, she used her own personal resources um, to acquire buildings to house these girls. You know, it's a really impressive story that we still don't have a full picture of because of uh, that nature of the incompleteness of the record she left behind. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> I and thank you for her excellent work. Because um, <laughs> when I saw it, when I came across the name, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I was like, we need to know a little bit more. I tend to do that with, you know, names <laughs> that I don't get to see as often. So I'm curious. It's like, oh, wait, like, let us get to shed a little bit more light on this. So, you know, towards the end of the, no uh, the novel, the book, that's how you know I'm reading a novel, but then towards the end of the book, um, you put in Sarkozy's campaign pledge when he <laughs> went to Senegal um, um, in 2007. So the speech where he declared that, you know, maybe colonialism or French colonialism was not all that bad. What was, do you remember your reaction when you heard that? I was actually reading, while I was reading your book, I was like, okay, I'm, I wonder if she's going to put this in here somewhere. So it was just, I like, at the end, I was like, oh, here it is. <laughs> oh, 
Well, I would love to hear your reaction to when you first heard that speech, which is just an incendiary, uh, just, I mean, the, I don't know what it is. It's not chutzpah, it's something bad. But, uh, you know, getting up in front of uh, an audience of, you know, Senegalese college students at the University of Dakar and telling this room of people that, you know, French colonialism wasn't all bad and using the fact that they were in university uh, as, as somehow proof of that. Of course, the University of Dakar, as I talk about in the book, was, uh, and Tony Schaefer has written about this too, was very hastily turned into a proper university right on the eve of decolonization because the French had not invested in higher education at all for any of its African citizens. Um, the, the access problems, the quality, the funding, the resources, you know, were just not there. This was something that was like supposedly going to happen by 1945, 1946, you know, post-war planners are saying, well, we actually have to get some kind of African university out there quickly. Did not happen. Uh, as I said, created hastily in 57, um, once the writing was already on the wall about the future of the Franco-African relationship. So it's really rich. Uh, I felt like it was really rich to hear Sarkozy say that in that place to that audience of, uh, of all contexts. But not at all surprising, um, you know, two years before that, you know, you had the French law uh, was passed, the 2005 law mandating that high school teachers in France uh, teach the positive side of French colonial history as well as its underside. Of course, Chirac, uh, facing a lot of pressure, rolled some of that back. But that's that's really been a subtext of debates about inclusion and equality and education ever since, um, and certainly um, still a part of the sort of witch hunt against the supposed Islamo-leftists that have taken over French academia uh, in recent years, <laughs> and analogous to you know the sort of fanatical responses to the 1619 project in the US or, um, you know, the sort of mediatization of, of fighting critical race theory, you know, all of these sort of school wars or wars over how we teach the most difficult aspects of uh, US, French, European, global history um, are completely unresolved and still motivating uh, a ongoing radicalization of politics today. I mean, it's pretty striking. Um, so uh, all of that said is that I was not at all shocked, <laughs> very uh, disgusted to be sure, but um, you know, it it's of a piece with the story that I'm telling in the book as well, where, you know, there was so these, these contradictory moves towards both recognizing that you have to make some serious change mm -hmm. and a complete unwillingness to take any accountability for past wrongs, violence, expropriations, shortcomings of any kind, right? So it's that, um, that particular kind of politics of insincerity that I think uh, traces directly back to that, that post-war moment. What was your reaction when you heard him say that? Well, I mean, 2007, I was still, I was still pretty young. And I remember, but I remember I was in the living room with my dad 
And I think he was replaying it with my uncles. What I was caught off guard was that I don't, I didn't, didn't have the language, but I was quite just thrown back by the audaciousness, like the boldness. Because I remember, I won't forget his posture. (laughs) That's what struck me. His posture was like, it's as if he was just saying, well, yeah, you know, like just take the rice and put it on that table. But (laughs) switch around the words, his posture was just, and I was like, there is such like the boldness of it. I was like, this kind of explained a lot <laughs> of, you know, either the novels I was reading or like this mm-hmm. in-betweenness that a lot of, um, you know, Franco-Africans or just Africans who are in the sub-Saharan region of like being in between this place of, yes, when the French were there, things worked, but they also left us in complete dis- like disarray in terms of how nothing can work sometimes. But I was just struck by just the audaciousness of it. Um, Of course, not surprised because I think my dad kind of groomed me to like, (laughs) you know, like ready to hear these things, which is quite sad. Um, But yeah, and then, you know, of course, the more you watch like France 24 and the more speeches you hear, like I think another, another speech that also caught me quite off guard was, I believe he made a, like a statement, and I guess I should say allegedly, so nothing happens to me. But um, when he <laughs> talked about how essentially um, all the African cultural stuff that have been looted over the years of colonialism just pretty much now just belongs to France and should just stay there. And I remember like, I was like, what? Like, <laughs> we're doing this again? So once again, his posture, completely comfortable as if like, yeah, just... I'll have a cup of coffee. Thank you. I was like, this is really, really odd, you know? And I think a best way was I heard this from a podcast where white supremacy isn't exactly the shark. It's the water, right? So we're Mm. maybe focused on the sharks, but it's the whole water and it's these systems and institutions that the way they are structured and built, which is exactly why I enjoyed this book, because you really explained how this post-war period kind of defined a lot of things to how we see things the way they are today, whether it's the Islam piece or even breaking down this, um, how European got this unity um, and how just even one, there was one section you wrote about, which I, I enjoyed, wasn't funny, but it was also just like one of the main reasons how they the French wanted to pr- further promote education within, I think it was Senegal you were speaking about, was because of their embarrassment when the French soldiers were, I think they went to World War II and they found out like they were quite, they weren't as educated. So they were like, well, this is where we're going to push education to kind of make France look better. So it wasn't even mm-hmm. for the sake of, well, we should all receive education. It wasn't on, on that sense, but it was on the sense of, well, how can we make France look better to further their seat within this European model? And I was like, this is just quite, um, yeah. Like, what do you say to, like, how do you, how do you even... <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's really important for understanding the real, like, the real sort of nub of so many issues today, right? That, you know, there was this moment, it was a real one, where 
I think people didn't want to appear racist anymore. <laughs> they definitely didn't want to appear racist anymore. That does not mean that they stopped being racist or perpetuating racism in the policy choices and practices, everyday practices that they were doing, right? And so something that I talk about in the book is that there's actually a new kind of, I think I call it a, a toxic ambivalence or something, where people are caught between this impulse to not appear racist, and they really don't, they genuinely don't want to be called a racist, <laughs> But they're really not willing to make the kind of adjustments that they would need to become an anti-racist, somebody that was actively combating uh, racism or trying to end racism or stop racial reproduction of any kind. Um, and I think that that's where so much of this um, both inertia, things getting stuck, but also the the really bad feelings that swell during this period comes from this sense, you know, the, the young Africans that are in this book, they know, they see it, they get it. <laughs> and they try and call them out on it. You know, like there's a part where I talk about uh, you know, these young African students that are in France in the 50s, like they are describing microaggressions. Mm -hmm. they, they have all of the link, all of the theoretical language that we now have to describe structural racism, everyday racism. They are doing that work. They are producing new knowledge about how racism was actually working in France in this period, just mm -hmm. from living it <laughs> and being able to articulate what those experiences were like, where those feelings really come from, and all of the different institutional locations and how that gets reproduced. I mean, it's really incredible, the knowledge that they had um, and that they produced. Uh, it's a great legacy for us to be able to continue to think with their ideas and their concepts, not just Fanon and yeah. Césaire and like the big <laughs> luminaries, right? but just these young, you know, these young students um, they got this crash course in racism from moving through this racist society and these racist institutions. So while you were writing this book, I wonder if you had like this ideal reader in mind. <laughs> if you had, um, or like, yeah, you know, this is what I would want my readers to take away. Obviously, we're all going to take away what we can take away from your mm -hmm. book you when you're done kind of like leave it up to us which I find a little scary <laughs> but how do you how do you feel what do you think you would want readers to take away from your book well it's a really uh tricky question I would take it maybe two different directions one I would just say that um you know I think one challenge for a book like this is reaching the audience that I want to reach. I think that, you know, for people that are interested in decoloniality and critical race theory and decolonization and colonial history like this, I will obviously make my way to them. And that's great. <laughs> um, I would love for folks who think they're interested in like bigger and more important topics than something like youth and education to actually give the book a look, because I think we under, we undervalue and underestimate how important um, youth and education, um, your youth programs, youth development and educational institutions are for the reproduction of wider uh, inequalities, global inequalities. And for people that are interested in, 
democracy. You know, I think that it would be great if they wanted to read this book and and think a little differently about some of the um, the values that we take for granted, like pluralism, uh, like inclusion. You know, I don't think that these are as unproblematic as many people treat them. Um, and I think that one of the the main takeaways I would hope people get from the book is that actually like practicing inclusion trying to include people can produce new forms of exclusion mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, might long outlast the initial inequality you were trying to combat. So, you know, two of the, um, I think, central takeaway points for me for the book would be, you know, thinking about this discourse that uh, racializes anti-racist activism, <laughs> right? It uh, foists uh, racism onto the anti-racist as the perpetrator of racism, right? So um, something I talk about in the book is that, you know, these, this discourse of anti-white racism is born in the late 1940s mm -hmm. uh, and it is wielded as a cudgel against um, Black African activists who are fighting for racial equality and not getting it. <laughs> um, and so I think that is one really important takeaway that I hope people would get. But uh, this broader, uh, the broader reach of the book, I would love to see folks who wouldn't necessarily think there's something for them in a book about uh, Black France, White Europe, uh, that that they might think about pluralism, democracy, inclusion, inclusiveness differently if they took a look. <laughs> And how about you? How do you walk away from this book? I know, like you've been working on it since twenty ten. <laughs> so I, I see you taking like this biggest sigh. <laughs> but how did how did it leave you? The process of writing and editing. Um, I haven't written my first book yet, but I know Dr. Drabinsky talks to me a lot. Like it changes you. It takes over your whole life. I think only closest thing was working on my master's thesis and, and during the pandemic that took over my life. You know, you start to see nothing but <laughs> notes from your professors. <laughs> yeah, it definitely takes over your life. I mean, I was, uh, I was revising the book uh, during, um, during the pandemic and I had just had a baby. So it was, oh, congratulations. <laughs> it was a, that's rough too. <laughs> Uh, I had a really challenging postpartum experience, so it was actually really, really, uh, really difficult to to be isolated as we all were during the pandemic uh, and dealing with all of these, you know, mental and physical changes of new motherhood mm -hmm. and trying to care for said baby and trying to deliver this other baby into the world. My book, <laughs> uh, so it was hard. But I would say that you know, I think that you had asked something about Brexit. I mean, there's been finishing the book, uh, you know, post 2020, mm -hmm. um, after so many monumental changes, you know, it seemed like there was this gonna, going to be this global reckoning on uh, white supremacy and racial violence in the wake of all of the murders of unarmed black people around the world in 2020 and before and since. Um, and, 
Brexit and the European Union potentially collapsing and the fallout from the 2015 migrant migrant crisis. You know, there was just so much. It was a very eventful decade, mm-hmm. the 2010s. Um, and yet I still really feel that the book speaks so directly to the questions and the problems and the challenges that we have that it it did make me question, well, how game-changing were any of these things that seemed really game-changing mm-hmm. as they were happening? Uh, at the same time, I guess I would say that um, I personally wrote this book from a place of, of wanting to think about white supremacy, wanting to think about structural racism, wanting to think about everyday racism and, and trying to move away from a focus on, you know, neo-fascism or fascism, the extreme right. Um, it didn't, when I started working on this in 2010, it didn't strike me that that's where like the real history of uh, history and future of racism was going. And that clearly was wrong. <laughs> we clearly do have to um, think more deeply about how, you know, racist ideologues are interacting in this space with, you know, more structural processes of racial reproduction, racial exclusion. So uh, if I were to write the book again, if I were to start the book again now in 2022, I think I would ask different questions, include different actors. You know, there's a lot of right-wing, extreme right-wing Europeanism Mm -hmm. from from this period that I didn't talk about because I was interested in what like the mainstream European project was able and willing to do with this prospect of um, multiracial democracy. But now I think thinking about them in dialogue would have been maybe more fruitful in light of the world that we now inhabit. So is there anything else that you're working on? I hate asking this. Well, I don't want to say I hate asking this question, but it's like we just finished this project and you're, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> but you know, anything else that you're either thinking about, um, like maybe something in like dialogue with that or maybe something completely different too. <laughs> but All right. I'll try and give you some succinct answers. <laughs> uh, I, I am writing an essay right now uh, on historicizing race talk in contemporary France. Um, So thinking about sort of the discourse around the excision of the word race from the constitution uh, in the French constitution in 2018, um, and really trying to push back on an understanding that this is sort of a natural outcome of French republicanism or colorblindness, but reframe it as really a direct response to the new kind of conceptual repertoires that anti-racist activists are deploying in France today, right? To think about racisme d'état, to think about racisé, decoloniality, there's, there, that it's always, everything that we like to attribute to a, you know, French political tradition, <laughs> all capitalized, right, is actually this, you know, dialogic process between uh, policymakers and the state and anti-racist activists that are pushing, you know, that is certainly the story uh, that I tell in this book. And I think that's what we see happening in France today. Um, there's a hiding behind a, a sort of uh, timeless French universalism as opposed to this is, this is a real-time story developing in real time that is happening because of mobilizations mm-hmm. and new critical tools uh, in and out of the academy that that 
you know, particularly Black French are using right now. Um, so I'm working on that. Uh, I have a, a second academic monograph project that is way off on the horizon. <laughs> that will be a, uh, a real transnational history of anti-racist activism mm. uh, in Europe since 1945, uh, which uh, Alana Lenton has a nice book uh, from 2004 on anti-racism in post-war Europe, but there have she's a sociologist. There haven't really been uh, prolonged historical investigations mm. to how anti-racist activism is is a fundamentally transnational process as well. Um, and and then I have a another sort of personal project uh, on on my family uh, who my grandparents were uh, basically the lone survivors of their family. They're both Holocaust survivors yeah. uh, from Vienna. Um, and, uh, my grandmother, both of my grandparents had access to different reparations programs. So mm -hmm. I want to think about the next project will be something about their experience, but also how they were able to secure reparations, what that meant for them in their lives, what it meant for the intergenerational transfer of wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am personally implicated in this story and how we might think about, uh, reparations, uh, the reparations regime in Europe today, uh, which, you know, really requires reparations for Holocaust uh, mm -hmm. victims and uh, still steadfastly excludes reparations for colonialism and slavery, how we might think about uh, a sort of transnational uh, European identity that is connected to the kind of reparations that are authorized and acceptable and, and what that means mm -hmm. for for this current debate. So that's that's where I'm going. <laughs> well, they both sound really great. Hopefully we can have you on back on, um, you know, for like however they come out. But, you know, we are still in the middle of whatever this uh, thing is, <laughs> whatever this pandemic, this. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully you just prioritize your mental health and, um, you know, as we work through the debates that's happening at the same time you're writing and it's like it's all happening together so it's um yeah <laughs> it keeps on going that's yeah. the that's the trick but thank you so much this was a wonderful conversation i really enjoyed thank it thank you so much <laughs>
Thank you.